Okay. Um, Hamlet. I've just, uh, there's a pile of photocopies here, which of that short essay uh, of the planches that I mentioned uh, in the email that I sent out for this week, um, where he floats the idea of intromission, which I think is quite helpful in thinking about both Hamlet and Oedipus, um, and in particular, the relationship between the protagonist and what I'm calling the kind of uh, spectral or demonic figures of the other uh, that are so important in both plays. Um, and I think, to some, in some way, the, uh, the idea of intromission, of a certain kind of violent implantation, if you like, uh, that Laplanche talks about is quite a useful, uh, with certain consequences to it, um, is quite a useful um, notion to, to uh, help one think about uh, these figures in, in Sophocles and Shakespeare's plays. Okay, now um, I'm going to read out a lecture on Hamlet um, rather than just ad-libbing. Um, and I want to situate uh, uh, Freud's reading of Hamlet in, in, a, in a larger kind of take on the play, as it were. Um, and then I want to sort of suggest ways in which we might move beyond Freud's reading of Hamlet. Okay, now um, the play itself is something of an anomaly. Hamlet the Prince is an enigma, and especially he's an enigma to himself. Hamlet the play represents the prince, a tragic protagonist, a revenger who lets sleep his dull revenge, as he says himself, um, as an irresolvable problem. And consequently, it becomes, the play itself becomes a problem. For four long acts in this, which is by far the longest of all Shakespeare's plays, and uh, recent scholarship has kind of differentiated very much between quarto and, and folio hamlets, uh, but uh, <coughs> hitherto they'd splice them together. So we played or read all the lines that Shakespeare wrote for Hamlet. It was incredibly long, you know, it's well over three hours, more like four or, or even longer. Um, it also contains perhaps the longest speeches <laughs> in any Shakespeare play. Um, so for four long acts, Hamlet, the tragic protagonist, though very busy, um, he's always dashing about doing things, yet he fails to act in, in some significant sense of that word. Um, he fails to carry through a mission demanded of him by the ghost of his father and to which he had passionately pledged himself by the end of Act One. As a result, the tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, as the folio collected works of 1623 titles the play, is a tragedy without a unified driving tragic action for all the heroic farewell epitaphs in its final moment. The title of the play in the two earlier quarto editions of 1603, of the so-called bad quarto, and of 1604, the so-called good quarto, was instead the tragical history, not the tragedy of Hamlet, but the tragical history of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. And one might wonder, is there a generic difference between a tragedy and a tragical history? Is a tragical history one perhaps that doesn't quite add up fully to a tragedy? Instead of the driving dynamic of tragedies such as Macbeth or King Lear or Coriolanus, we have Horatio's busy list of bungles and mishaps that he promises to disclose publicly at Hamlet's funeral obsequies in the final moment of the play, and which are themselves due to take place only after the play is over. Okay, after the play is ending, we'll hear the truth of what happened. 
In the closing moments, in one last final postponement, Horatio promises Fortinbras, who's swept onto stage at the end, so shall you hear of carnal, bloody, and unnatural acts, of accidental judgments, casual slaughters, of deaths put on by cunning and forced cause, and in this upshot purposes mistook fallen on the inventor's heads. So rather than a unified tragic action, Horatio promises to describe a catalogue of failed actions, accidents, disasters, accidental judgments, purposes mistook. Furthermore, Horatio urges the rapid establishment of Fortinbras' new regime, lest, he says, more mischance, uh, uh, on, uh, uh, more, lest more mischance on plots and errors happen. Perhaps Horatio feels that another round of casual slaughters might uh, finish off the remaining few who are still alive. Uh, and then there's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern who come wandering on. Sorry, there's the English ambassador who comes wandering on at the end to tell us that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. A great line, uh, I think. Uh, wonderful in its redundancy, as if, that, as if that's what we were thinking about at that point in the play. And of course, it was a great gift to Tom Stoppard in his uh, parodic play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Of course, Hamlet does finally get his man. He reacts immediately and violently to the violence that has been done to him in the, great, in the duel scene at the end. And in a kind of return to sender, Hamlet stabs Claudius with the very envenomed sword that had been used against him. And he forces the poisoned wine Claudius had also intended for him down Claudius's own throat. Hamlet had always been good at rapid reactions uh, and under pressure from events, sending Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to their deaths, stabbing whoever is lurking behind the arras in his mother's bedchamber. It turns out, however, to be the wrong man, Polonius, leaping aboard the pirate ship uh, at the last moment, leaping into Ophelia's grave to confront Laertes. A good man in an emergency, Hamlet seizes the initiative, however, uh, <coughs> uh, his seizing of the initiative, rather, is essentially a reactive pattern, okay? That is a reaction to the initiatives of others taken towards him. With one exception, and that is the putting on the play of the murder of Gonzago before the king, Hamlet is reactive rather than proactive throughout. Things are done to him and he reacts to them. He dies poisoned by the very man who had poisoned his father, and furthermore, he dies in danger of taking with him to the grave his knowledge of Claudius's secret crimes and Gertrude's adultery. Now, Francis Bacon, Shakespeare's contemporary, in his much-quoted essay of Revenge, wrote, Revenge is a kind of wild justice. The most tolerable sort of revenge is for those wrongs for which there is no law to remedy for those wrongs for which there is no law to remedy. Bacon argues that only that revenge is defensible where the crime is beyond the law and which is a public and open revenge. For justice to be done, it must be seen to be done. A justified revenge, if it is to become more than a private vindictive tit for tat, is a public calling of the criminal to account and to punishment where the law cannot do so. So Hamlet's last minute killing of Claudius fails to make his death a matter of justice, however wild, because it has not been explained and justified in public. Hamlet himself is aware of this, which is why he struggles to prevent Horatio from committing a stoic suicide like an antique Roman. And he says at the very end, O oh God, Horatio, what a wounded name, things standing thus unknown, shall live behind me. If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while. 
and in this harsh world draw thy breath in pain to tell my story, because he, Hamlet, hasn't told his story. Hamlet's killing of Claudius on the rebound in the duel scene is not enough for a justifiable and proportionate revenge then. A story must be told which makes sense of Hamlet's regicide, which exposes Claudius's crimes, and which brings satisfaction to the perturbed spirit of his murdered father. However, such a story, Hamlet's story, is never told in the public space of Elsinore. During the time of the play, Horatio promises to tell everybody after the play is over. One last final postponement. Even at the play's bungled close, the ghost has yet to receive any public justice, wild or otherwise. Indeed, both Hamlet and his play seem to have forgotten the, the ghost entirely by the final scene. There is to be no sigh of satisfaction from the old mole under the stage when his murderer Claudius breathes his last. Now, some critics have dismissed this as a non-problem, have minimised or just ignored Hamlet's failure to act, uh, to plan, to initiate a revenge plot that the genre of the revenge play requires. However, Hamlet's inaction is clearly a problem for Hamlet himself. That would be my first response to those critics. Uh, and Hamlet rebukes himself passionately for his failure to act on at least three separate occasions in three separate speeches. We find him doing this already by the end of Act Two in the concluding soliloquy after the player's speech in 2-2. Uh, uh, We've had the long speech about um, the death of Priam of Troy and his killing by Pyrrhus and the grief of Hecuba. Hamlet contrasts himself with the emotional eloquence of the player who breaks down in tears over the death of Priam and in sympathy with the grief of the long-dead Hecuba, Queen of Troy. He reproaches himself for his inability to expose and denounce Claudius in public, his failure to, quote, cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free. Despite being the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, he can only denounce himself to himself for cowardice, when he clearly isn't a coward. And in the privacy of his soliloquy, he can only rant and rage against Claudius. Bloody, bawdy villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain, oh vengeance. As Hamlet well knows, these headbanging repetitions are merely a series of impotent verbal assaults on Claudius and delivered in private, not in public. A momentary rhetorical tantrum for which he goes on to denounce himself as a whore who must unpack his heart with words. Yet, characteristically, Hamlet ends the soliloquy uh, by deciding not to organise a plot, uh, like any other Avenger in Elizabethan or Jacobean revenge play, with Horatio and the others who have seen the ghost and know that there's something to it, um, to bring Claudius to justice, but he decides instead to put on a play. A second moment of guilty self-reproach occurs in the closet scene with Gertrude in Act 3, Scene 4. In the midst of a paroxysm, another paroxysm of denunciation of the hated Claudius to his mother, a murderer, a villain, a king of shreds and patches, he's working himself up again for another um, sort of rhetorical uh, tantrum, as it were, Hamlet is suddenly interrupted by the reappearance of the ghost. Instantly he changes tack and he anticipates what the ghost is going to say to him, the ghost's reproach to him. Do you not come, your tardy son, to chide that lapsed in time and passion lets go by the important acting of your dread command? Oh, say. 
unless we might be thinking that this is just a neurotic self-accusation of Hamlet's without any foundation, we then have the ghost precisely chide his tardy son and reiterate his original command to, quote, remember me, do not forget this visitation is but to whet thy blunt, almost blunted purpose. So this is not just a question of Hamlet's melancholic self-loathing, but an argument, agreement, sorry, between dead father and living son that Hamlet has failed so far to implement what he calls the important acting of your dread command. In other words, Hamlet's delay is established as a dramatic reality, not just something that we as readers or audience or Shakespeare scholars might infer by puzzling over the ambiguous chronology of the play's events, how long took place between the end of Act 1 and Act uh, and at the beginning of Act 2, did he have time to do something and he hasn't done it? Uh, it's not that kind of calculation. It's that delay is made a dramatic reality in the play itself. The third moment I want to discuss is the last of Hamlet's soliloquies, where he contrasts himself, not as in Act 2, with the player weeping over Hecuba and the death of Priam, but with the, the figure of the young Fortinbras the Norwegian prince, leading his army against Poland in order to wage war and to vindicate his honour over a worthless scrap of ground. This short scene, which is traditionally numbered Act 4, Scene 4, plays a significant role in the two-part structure of the play. Unfortunately, this has been obscured by traditional act-scene divisions that we've inherited from the 18th century editor Rowe, who went through the plays and, and assigned a lot of their incomplete um, scene divisions and numbers. Uh, Rowe cuts the play at the end of the scene in Gertrude's closet that I've just briefly discussed by ending Act 3 at that point. This interrupts the run of brief scenes that follow on immediately from the closet scene and that deal with the immediate aftermath of Hamlet's killing of Polonius and hiding of his body, his virtual arrest uh, and his sending into England. Emrys Jones, in his book, Scenic Form in Shakespeare, makes the strong argument that Act 3 needs to continue, in fact, till this plot sequence is concluded with the sending of Hamlet into exile. That would give us a natural break where an interval might appear between the play's first long three-act movement uh, <coughs> that goes from the ghost's first appearance on the battlements of Elsinore to Hamlet's last soliloquy as he goes into exile. Uh, and then the second shorter movement of the play begins with the madness of Ophelia and centres on the return first of Laertes and then of Hamlet to Denmark and their fatal duel. Hamlet's soliloquy is provoked by the brief appearance of Fortinbras and his army passing over the stage and it was cut, it's cut from the first folio, uh, collected works of 1623. It only appears in the good quarter of 1604. But it, it it's important because it allows the end of Act 3 to conclude with the play's first movement. movement. Uh, and it, it's a sort of structural rhyme, if you like, which Shakespeare has clearly invented um, <coughs> between the two, end, the, the two ends of the two movements that constitute the play. There's a Fortinbras moment, as it were. This is a structural rhyme, then, uh, where Fortinbras appears briefly, followed by Hamlet, who only just misses him on stage. Fortinbras goes off, Hamlet goes on. And the reverse happens in the final scene. Hamlet's dead, uh, and as soon as he dies, Fortinbras then comes on, onto stage. They keep missing each other, as it were. So young Hamlet and young Fortinbras never actually meet. Consequently, the sudden appearance of Fortinbras, the warrior, end stops the play's two parts. And he provides a striking contrast to the central figure of Hamlet himself. 
And Shakespeare, in effect, makes Fortinbras a structural feature of the play's organization. And it's his appearance there that for, you know, provokes Hamlet's thematization of his own inability to act, that long-last soliloquy in that scene. How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. I won't read that out, but <coughs> have a look at that soliloquy, which is often cut, um, but which is his longest, most reflective moment about his own inability to act. Um, so, um, we might well ask then, what has Hamlet managed to achieve at this late turning point in the play when he's sent off to England? Well, he's managed to draw attention and suspicion to himself through his assumption of an antic disposition, to put on a play that is broken off halfway through due to the effect on Claudius of Hamlet's own intrusive uh, running commentary on the, on the play within the play's action. He's managed to refuse a golden opportunity of running Claudius through while the latter is trying and failing to pray. And he has killed the wrong man, Polonius, instead of Claudius. Finally, he gets himself forcibly sent abroad with, quote, fiery quickness uh, and with a secret execution order hanging over his head. So, understandably, in this soliloquy, Hamlet's self-bafflement and sense of failure is, is uh, strongly marked. And the contrast with Fortinbras, his name means strong arm, uh, <coughs> uh, as, uh, as it were, nails that comparison into, into place. We first meet him as the angry warrior son in the very beginning of the play, uh, who is threatening uh, Claudius and Claudius's new regime, demanding back the land that his father had lost in the one-man-on-man one -man duel that the two older figures, old Hamlet and old Fortinbras, had fought, and in which old <coughs> Fortinbras lost his life and his land. And there's his young son who's up for it uh, to revenge his father and demanding the land back. A similar contrast is engineered in the second movement of the play. This time it's with Laertes, another uh, angry mourning son of a murdered father. <coughs> there are three of them in the play, uh, who returns angrily to Denmark on the news of his father's death. And interestingly, Laertes no sooner sets foot on Danish soil than he's managed to rouse an angry mob who are calling for Laertes to be king. He has stormed the royal palace. He has overcome the royal guard of Switzers and has Claudius as his mercy or within a matter of minutes on stage time, as it were. Um, indeed, the whole of the second part of the play is organised around a rivalry and contrast between Laertes and Hamlet. And Hamlet sees that himself. He says um, uh, that in looking at uh, Laertes, uh, by the image of my cause, I see the portraiture of his. He is angry about his murdered father. Laertes is angry about his. And Hamlet is the one who's murdered Laertes' father. So the revenging mourning sons and murdered fathers, there's three lots in the play. So the play frames Hamlet then between both Laertes and, Hamlet, uh, and Fortinbras, uh, these two contrasting sons who are very busy about uh, the act of, uh, of, of, of avenging their dishonoured fathers. Hamlet then is a mystery, a mystery to us, a mystery to himself. Um, and he engages in a kind of uh, perpetual postponement, um, deflection into other busy activities uh, from the one that he's promised to undertake. But this postponement, delay, displacement is not just a feature of Hamlet's personal psychology uh, or behaviour, though it certainly is that. Um, it's a quality of the play itself. The play 
not just Hamlet, but the play delays, the play postpones, the play displaces its, its own um, hypothetical um, but never achieved tragic action. Um, the play proliferates scenes, speeches, interactions between minor characters, intrigues that don't involve Hamlet at all, or for which he is the targeted object, but never, never the active subject. If Hamlet postpones and delays the acting of his father's dread command, it's equally the case that the play itself diverts and detours and delays Hamlet uh, as a presence on stage. It's rather like in a film, if you think of the way in which in cinema a film can present what is a very brief act, a very short moment of chronological time, and then it can lengthen it and enlarge it and draw it out through various uh, formal devices. Uh, through The camera can go into slow motion. Uh, it can go into replay or flashback, um, or it can, uh, it can delay and elaborate uh, a piece of action in cinematic time, which is different from, as it were, the time, the chronology of the story. And the same thing, I think, is happening, can happen in literary fiction, in novels as well. Um, and that's something like that, I think, is happening in Shakespeare's play, the longest, as I say, of all his plays. It delays us, the audience, and draws out our expectations almost unbearably. It retards our movement through the plot with more and more minor characters such as Rinaldo, the verbally diarrheic, Osric at the end, with interminable conversations when what we are wanting is action. With long speeches on set topics, uh, with Polonius's elaborate self-entangling syntax, his sentences that, un that endlessly generate uh, subordinate clauses, then he loses his place in his own sentence. Um, it's like a comic enlargement of the play's own processes. Uh, this generation of unstoppable subordinate clauses in almost every verse speaker in the play. In fact, I want to argue that delay is kind of written into the very DNA of the Shakespeare's play, along with detour, proliferation, which are the logical complements of the play's strategies of postponement. Take the example of Hamlet coming across Claudius, kneeling unguarded in his closet in Act 3, Scene 3, immediately after the play within the play. Uh, Hamlet takes out his sword to dispatch Claudius, and he'd said his, 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 his rationalization for putting on the play within the play is, I want to make sure, I want to make absolutely sure uh, that Claudius is guilty, that the ghost is telling me the truth. He's got his evidence. Uh, uh, Claudius bolts um, guiltily. Uh, Hamlet's now absolutely triumphantly sure, though he'd never really shown any signs that he was unsure uh, until that moment. Um, and he comes across... Claudius kneeling with his back to the audience, vulnerable, exposed, and trying to pray, and being unable to pray. This, of course, this, uh, um, and then Hamlet decides, surprise, surprise, not to kill him. Um, the theologically dubious presumption that Claudius was praying, or he looks as if he's praying, so he may well go to heaven, um, uh, and uh, Hamlet doesn't want to do that, send him to heaven, he wants to send him to hell. Uh, so Hamlet's own decision is to let this golden opportunity uh, to go by and to postpone his revenge for another moment. However, it's the play, or Shakespeare, who has Claudius then, after Hamlet has left the stage, has Claudius rise from his knees at that very moment and declare that, oh, drat it, he can't pray after all because he can't give up the benefits of his crime, his throne and his queen. My words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts and never to heaven go, he sighs. So Hamlet then mistakes his most opportune moment 
which any revenger would give his eye teeth for, to kill Claudius and to send him unrepentant, unable to pray to hell. Now that's partly Hamlet's decision, but it's also Shakespeare's decision to frame that moment in the way he does. The play offers Hamlet, as I say, a golden opportunity and then withdraws it teasingly from him. It hides Claudius's failure of repentance beneath that external kneeling posture of prayer. Both Hamlet and equally the play, one might feel, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Indeed, the very principle of indirection, detour, compulsive postponement takes the form, becomes almost embodied in the entire character, that is to say, the endlessly scheming, myopically spying, spying and unstoppably loquacious figure of Polonius, who gets lost in the tangled thickets of his own sentences by indirection, finding direction out, he claims, but never quite getting there. So this is a compulsion that infects the whole play, not just Hamlet, right down to the rhetorical patterns and style of the play's speeches, no matter who is speaking. It's not just Hamlet's verse, but everybody's verse. Claudius can't take a drink of wine, for instance, without organising a 21-gun salute, bouncing his own importance off the nearest rock face, as Wilbersant has put it. Uh, no jocund health that Denmark drinks today, but the great cannon to the clouds shall tell, and the kings rouse, the heavens shall brute again, re-speaking earthly thunder, the king announces. So re-speaking, redoubling, self-replicating, the play is taken over by an aesthetic, or we could almost say an aesthetic pathology of verbal proliferation, symbolic redoubling, which is the reverse side of its strategies of postponement, deferral of action. The proliferation of figures of speech and subordinate clauses that postpone endlessly the main verb, the doing word, in so many sentences, uh, in so many speeches, is pervasive in the play. And it's not for nothing that the play's favourite rhetorical figure is what um, the rhetoricians call Hendiades. Hendiades a very particular figure of speech that is everywhere in the play. The Greeks called this figure of speech one thing by two, representing one thing by two terms. And Puttenham, the famous Elizabethan rhetorician, calls it the, the trope of twinning. And our examples are, in the gross and scope of my opinion, uh, this post-haste and roamage in the land, in the most high and palmy state of Rome, in the morn and liquid dew of youth, these but the trappings and the suits of woe bend you to remain here in the cheer and comfort of our eye, the expectancy and rose of the fair state. And Ophelia, in a sort of triumph of Hamlet's speak, stretches from a twinning into a tripling. She talks of the courtiers, soldiers, scholars, eye, tongue, sword. So you've got that um, amplification, proliferation, at the very micro levels of language, pervasive throughout the play. Indeed, I'm sometimes haunted by the impression that it was not so much Shakespeare Polonius who might be the secret author of Hamlet. At least Shakespeare was getting in touch with his own inner Polonius in so many moments in the play. A good example of this would be Gertrude's very lyrical, in many ways poignant, set speech about the death of Ophelia. Um, and in the middle of that, where uh, the poignancy is most as it, it, at its most exquisite, you might say, um, she stops to bestow on us perhaps rather more botanical information than we might think necessary or that we need to know on this sad occasion. For the flowers that Ophelia was gathering when she died, we are told, uh, and I quote, 
crow flowers, nettles, daisies, and long purples that liberal shepherds give a grosser name, but our cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. Long purples, dead men's fingers. Of course, our minds are immediately set racing. What other uh, uh, and which the dead men's other body parts those liberal shepherds might be naming quite so grossly? And why Gertrude or Shakespeare, or is it Polonius, feels it necessary at this point to send our thought shooting off into that rather risque direction? What is the sort of odd sexual joke doing in the middle of that speech? Well, it's clearly the case then that even after his death, the spirit of Polonius presides over, say, that interminable conversation right at the end. We were aching for Hamlet to get into his duel with, with uh, Laertes, and Osric comes on stage, and there's these long, Latinate, complicated, over-elaborate <coughs> speeches in which he's been mocked by Hamlet, who then mimics him back to himself. And you think, why on earth are you doing this, Shakespeare? Why have we been given this moment at this very point where we're expecting, finally, <coughs> at last, a postponed tragic outcome. However, for all the play's retarding of the dramatic sequence of actions that might lead to the fulfilment of the ghost's demand for revenge, for all its proliferation of scenes, figures, alternative activities, substitute activities if you like, its focus is indeed on Hamlet and on Hamlet's inaction. This anomaly has been explained by some commentators in historicist terms and by others as a problem of Hamlet's personal psychology. One version of the historicist argument is that Hamlet is a university-educated Renaissance intellectual, true enough, whose philosophical soliloquies show affinities with Montaigne and who is confronted with an, an archaic demand for blood revenge that belongs to a much earlier, far cruder, feudal warrior social order, which his sensitivity and his humanist formation has made him unsuited to and unable to carry out. Now, my problem with this initially plausible-sounding explanation is that at no point does Hamlet ever venture on an ethical critique of the demand for revenge. Of all his soliloquies, no soliloquy is devoted to that issue. Indeed, he has no moral problem, in principle, with carrying out a murderous revenge on Claudius, and he is as quick as any of the other sword-carrying young men, Fortinbras and Laertes, to stick some metal into anyone whom he takes to be a mortal enemy such as Polonius behind the arras, uh, Laertes in the duel, and at last, even, finally, Claudius in the play's final bloodbath. It's not that Hamlet can't kill his enemies, it's that he doesn't premeditatedly, proactively, plan and carry out the revenge killing of his one major enemy, the one in particular whom his father has revealed to him as his murderer, the man who has seduced and then married his mother. And this is not because he is opposed to revenge in principle. Indeed, he does revenge speak quite robustly, moving in and out of a traditional revenge's idiom uh, on a number of occasions, drinking hot blood and doing bitter business that the day would quake to look on, he promises us. Now, this comes, that, that promise comes after Hamlet has settled his supposed doubts about the ghost, doubts that have not appeared previously until he decides to put on the play. The important thing to note is that for all the confirmation of guilt that Hamlet claims to derive from Claudius's angry exit from the play within the play in that next scene, within minutes of dramatic time, he's stumbling across the unguarded kneeling figure and deciding not to kill him. So there's a pattern in Hamlet's passions and in his inhibitions, but it is not a pattern that he himself can grasp. 
of the psychological commentators on Hamlet, it's Freud, I want to suggest, who, whose comments in a famous passage that I've given you in a handout uh, from the interpretation of dreams, throws some light, I think, on some of the patterns of repetition in which Hamlet is caught up. Freud contrasts Shakespeare's Hamlet with Sophocles' Oedipus, arguing that in ancient Greek drama, the fantasy of murdering the father and taking his place with the mother is literally, if unwittingly, acted out by Oedipus. Whereas in Hamlet, such an Oedipal fantasy is only present negatively. That is, we can detect its presence only through Hamlet's inhibitions, through what he can't do rather than what he does do. And Freud notes, the plot of the drama, however, shows us that Hamlet is far from being represented as a character incapable of action, the famous interpretation by Coleridge and by Goethe. Um, instead, we see him doing so on, on, on at least two occasions, the ones I've already discussed. And Freud goes on to say, what is it then that inhibits Hamlet in fulfilling the task set him by his father's ghost? The answer, once again, is that it is the peculiar nature of the task, Freud says. And I quote again, Hamlet is able to do anything except take vengeance uh, on the man who did away with his father and took that father's place with his mother, the man who shows him the repressed desires of his own childhood realized. Okay. The man who occupies a particular structural position. The man who did away with his father and took that father's place with his mother. Thus the loathing that should drive Hamlet onto revenge is replaced in him by self-reproaches, by scruples of conscience, which remind Hamlet that he himself is literally no better than the sinner whom he is to punish. And Freud adds, here I've translated into conscious terms what was bound to remain unconscious in Hamlet's mind. Now, although it's been ignored by most commentators on Hamlet, I think Freud's insight directs us to that structural position that Claudius and only Claudius occupies. He is indeed the one man who has killed the father, not his own father, but Hamlet's father, and taken that father's place with the mother. Implicit in Freud's argument is the link, then, between Claudius and Hamlet. What I'll call, this is my formulation, not Freud's, a negative identification, if you like, a negative or hostile identification uh, by Hamlet with Claudius. And it establishes a very powerful and specific inhibition that disables Hamlet from acting against Claudius. It also helps to explain his unmotivated self-loathing uh, through its connection with the lo his loathing for Claudius. Uh, and this is an insight of, of Freud's, I think, that, that his loathing for Claudius is turned into self-reproaches and self-loathing. Now, there is some quite powerful evidence in the play that would support Freud's argument. Evidence, oddly enough, that Freud himself doesn't address. The most obvious is Hamlet's relation to his mother Gertrude, which Freud unaccountably ignores. Most <coughs> audiences, and I suspect uh, an awful lot of readers, uh, have felt from Hamlet's first scene his powerful anger with his mother with Gertrude. His anger has a kind of obsessional quality to it because there is more to it than Hamlet's perfectly justified objection to the haste with which Gertrude has married her brother-in-law, the new king, and the rather bland religiosity with which she urges Hamlet to stop mourning and, like her, to forget his father. Thou knowest tis common, she urges him, all that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity. 
the extra dimension that makes Hamlet's anger more than it seems, I think, is his intense preoccupation with his mother's sexuality. Where old Hamlet is praised for his tenderness towards his wife, um, it's hard not to feel that there is something both greedy and clinging in Hamlet's description of his mother's desire for his father. Heaven and earth, must I remember it? Why, she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. This becomes an open erotic hatred when her coupling with Claudius is described, as it is on more than one occasion. Here, for instance, it's addressed directly to Gertrude herself in the closet scene. Nay, he says to his mother, but to live in the rank sweat of an inseamed bed, stewed in corruption, honeying and making love over the nasty sty, like two pigs on heat and rutting. Sniffing around then the maternal sheets, Hamlet's incestuous obsessions have never seemed more gross and more palpable than in a moment like that. Hamlet's disgust with what he imagines Claudius does with Gertrude in bed, between the incestuous sheets, as it were, is so detailed and so intrusive. He actually, in this strange syntactical reverse, says, do not do what I'm about to tell you to do. Which is a very strange thing. He doesn't say, don't do what I'm about. Don't do X or Y. He says, I'm going to tell you to do X or Y, but don't do it. Now, what is it that he's telling her to do? and not to do at the same time, okay? Let the bloat king tempt you to bed, and let him for a pair of reachy kisses paddling in your neck with his damned fingers unravel all this matter out. So I think it portrays a kind of demented possessiveness about his mother, not only a kind of disgust, but a possessiveness that is displaced across onto Ophelia and to his angry abuse of her. We can see this in the graveyard scene when the sight of Laertes leaping into his sister's grave and embracing Ophelia's dead body provokes a sort of jealous competitive rage in Hamlet. Hamlet then leaps into the grave as well and shouts at, uh, uh, at Laertes, I loved Ophelia. 40,000 brothers could not with all their quantity of love make up my sum. Extraordinary thing to do. Now, psychoanalytic reflection might suggest that if something to which one has pledged, Hamlet's act of revenge, for instance, is postponed even when the most perfect opportunity for it arises, if it is simply not acted on and other things proliferate instead, then one must interrogate those displacement activities in order to find out what is producing the paralysis and the diversion of energies. If we ask ourselves, between the end of Act 1, where he pledges himself to remember, and uh, uh, Act 4, Scene 4, when he's sent into ex exile, what has he done? Well, in terms of uh, pushing the, uh, the revenge plot, or the, the non-existent revenge plot further, he's done almost nothing. But he has drawn attention to himself. He has become the burning topic in Elsinore. Um, it's the, he's the topic of the moment. He is, as, as Ophelia says, the observed of all observers. There are eight different occasions in the play where different combinations of people get together and have a Hamlet discussion. What's his motive? What, what's he up to? What are his intentions? What's driving him? In other words, the first Hamlet seminar ever takes place in Elsinore. He, Hamlet as enigma, he puts himself on the public agenda by his behavior. The two things he does put on, however, the two moments where he's proactive is when the visiting players arrive and he says, we'll have a speech 
a speech now, straight away, immediately. He can't wait till at some later point where they've got all their properties together and uh, etc. I want it now. I want to hear this particular speech, a particular speech that has lived in my memory. So that's one moment, and the second moment is the putting on of the play uh, within the play, The Murder of Gonzago. He wants, he says, a passionate speech, one speech in it I chiefly loved. And we get that lengthy Tro Troy speech with Priam and Hecuba and Pyrrhus, Priam's killer, and Hamlet has it off by heart. Hamlet launches into the speech. He can't wait for the actor. He launches into the speech and then halfway through hands it over to the, to the actor to continue. And with the play within the play, Hamlet even, uh, he, 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 he's like the producer of that play. Uh, he writes an extra speech for it. And, and he keeps being the voiceover, commenting on it, almost interrupting the action, till Ophelia tells him rather dryly, you are as good as a chorus, my lord. In other words, politely shut up and let the players get on with it. So the whole theatrical sequence in Act 2, Scene 2 and Act 3, Scene 2 shows Hamlet as his most proactive, organising, making something happen in a way that he doesn't do anywhere else. And it's to do with these two theatrical fictions. Hamlet's passionate implication, then, in these two imagined situations is obvious. Both of them have centre stage the figure of a killer, Pyrrhus, the blood-covered killing machine who slaughters old, quote, grandsire Priam as the towers of Troy come crashing down around him. And in the play within the play, the murderer Lucianus, who pours poison into the ear of the player king as he sleeps in his orchard. It's fairly obvious that in their different ways, both these stories, these theatrical fictions, echo in displaced and thinly disguised form the killing of old King Hamlet by his brother Claudius. Both Pyrrhus and Lucianus are king killers, and they are also Claudius figures. Pyrrhus is the killer of the father King Priam, and Lucianus poisons the player king through the ear, just as Claudius did his brother. However, the complication is that Pyrrhus is also a revenging son, like Hamlet who kills Priam to avenge the death of his own father, Achilles, as those of you who've done the epic course remember from Homer. Okay. Uh, <coughs> Achilles was killed by Priam's son, Paris, during the siege of Troy. And so Achilles' his son is out for revenge and hacks the old man to pieces. While Hamlet, with the other play, with the play within the play, Hamlet shouts across the play within the play to Claudius, the king, as Lucianus, uh, the poisoner, enters on stage. This is one, Lucianus, nephew to the king, that poisons him in the garden for his estate. You shall see anon how the murderer gets the love of Gonzago's wife. What could be more clunky and obvious? Hamlet's aggressive voiceover commentary signals clearly a threat to Claudius. I know your secret. I know how you killed my father. Also, I'm the nephew who is going to kill you. And in response to Hamlet's implied threats, Claudius promptly rises and flees the scene. In other words, the figure of Lucianus in the inner play represents both Claudius, the poisoner in the ear, and Hamlet, his nephew. In both these figures of Pyrrhus and Lucianus, then, there's a fusion or confusion of Hamlet and Claudius, the revenger. <coughs> and the criminal. Hamlet's attraction to these narratives, he actually wants to reenact them with their fusion of contradictory or 
uh, <coughs> unacknowledged identification between Hamlet and his loathed antagonist, Claudius. This is precisely the negative identification between them that Freud's analysis points to. An such an identification leads to the combination of emotional obsession and paralyzed inaction that we see in Hamlet. So, Freud gives us a, a useful or valuable insight, but the limitations of it are that Freud's account of Hamlet's delay and his paralysis is entirely in terms of his relationship to his uncle, Claudius. Freud paradoxically says nothing about his incestuous obsessions with his mother, um, and he says nothing about his actual relationship with his father, and that's really puzzling for Freud. You know, This is a play in which there are three murdered fathers and three revenging mourning sons, and Freud says nothing about the father-son relationship other than um, that Claudius has uh, awoken and reactivated uh, Hamlet's repressed infantile Oedipal impulses. So that's a puzzling, um, a puzzling uh, omission. Um, and I want to redress it to some extent by uh, turning to the figure of the ghost and to those early scenes where at the right at the beginning of the play, the play begins with the haunting of Elsinore by the ghost. It, it, Hamlet isn't in that scene. Uh, and then Hamlet encounters him. Uh, it's a, tr a troubling figure, um, uh, and the ghost is formally, almost ritually interrogated by, by uh, Horatio. Thou art a scholar, speak to it, Horatio, says Bernardo, to establish whether, uh, you know, what, 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 why he's come back. Is it to do a good deed? Is it to reveal um, a hidden crime? Is it to uh, tell, talk, tell us about buried treasure? These are the traditional things that ghosts come back for. And the ghost refuses to answer Horatio. It's only when, uh, to Hamlet, that he will speak his secret. Uh, and uh, he tells it so powerfully and so compellingly, almost compulsively, that Hamlet straightaway says, I'll call thee Hamlet, king, father, royal Dane. Instantly, Hamlet recognizes him, which is why the rationalization later on, oh, he might be telling the truth, um, I, I better kind of put on a play within the play, uh, doesn't, doesn't really work. Hamlet has an instant recognition and rapport with the ghost. They then go to a more removed ground and the ghost reveals his status and where he comes from. And it's neither from heaven nor from hell, but from a third location where he is, and I quote the ghost's words, doomed for a certain term to walk the night and for the day confined to fast in fires till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. In other words, the ghost is confined temporarily to a place in the medieval Catholic tradition that was called purgatory, but which can't be named as such on the Elizabethan stage. It was abolished by the Protestant Reformation and virtually by Act of Parliament when Parliament expropriated all the money that had been left for uh, requiem masses to be sung for the souls of the dead in purgatory. Uh, <coughs> and there's an anomaly around that. Uh, Hamlet's just come from Wittenberg with Horatio. Wittenberg was Luther's university, center of international Protestantism, and Luther's breaking point with the Church of Rome was over the doctrine of purgatory, his repudiation of the doctrine of purgatory. Hamlet comes back from a term at Wittenberg uh, and to meet uh, his father's ghost that has just come from a Catholic purgatory. What is Shakespeare doing? As its name suggests, it's a temporary place of purging purgatory, 
where sins that had not been confessed or for which penance hadn't been done is uh, <coughs> are, uh, to be purged away in a metaphorical and literal fire. So the ghost says to his son that he was murdered without his, by his brother without any preparation for death and he was cut off in the blossom of my sins, unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed, no reckoning made, but sent to my account with all my imperfections on my head. Oh, horrible, oh, horrible, most horrible. And he uses three technical terms, unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed, that refer to the three sacraments the Catholic tradition requires the dying person to receive. Uh, the housel is the Eucharist. To be unappointed is not to have confessed, to have gone to confession. And unannealed means unanointed, not to have received the sacrament of extreme unction. So in a state of spiritual unpreparedness, he's been sent into the afterlife. And he refuses to tell... Um, he refuses to tell... Uh, his son, what it's like in purgatory. Um, but he does say something, which is, I think, very interesting. He says, uh, uh, at the end of his description of coming from purgatory, um, uh, he says that he has forbidden to disclose the secrets of his prison house to ears of flesh and blood, because if he did, he quote, and I quote, I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood, make thy two eyes like stars start from their spheres, thy knotted and combined locks to part, and each particular hair to stand on end like quills upon the fretful porpentine. But this eternal blazon must not be to ears of flesh and blood. So the ghost engages here in a rhetorical strategy uh, in which he says something by saying that he's not going to say it, as it were. Uh, he invokes a topic by denying that it should be invoked. So he doesn't give the details, but he communicates, as it were, the traumatic affect. In other words, he indulges in a traumatic speech whose lightest word can freeze blood, start, cause eyes to start out of the head, to make hair stand on its end. That is to say, a form of speech that can push the body into extreme spasm and take over and derange the bodily processes of the listener who receives this traumatic message. He withholds the secrets of his prison house, but the sensory power of this description of their potential devastating effect on any recipient or listener, in fact, induces just such an effect in Hamlet himself. He then goes on to tell the story of how he was poisoned, poisoned in such an intimate and peculiarly detailed way, through the ear. And he re in telling the story, he relives that act of poisoning and in effect transmits it um, to Hamlet. Sleeping within my orchard, my custom of the afternoon, upon the secure hour thy uncle stole, and with the juice of cursed Hebanon in a vial, in the porches of my ears did pour the leprous distillment whose effect holds such an enmity with blood of man that swift as quicksilver, it courses through the natural gates and alleys of the body with a sudden vigour doth posset and curd like eager droppings into milk, the thin and wholesome blood. So did it mine, and a most instant tetter barked about most lazar-like with vile and loathsome crust all my smooth body. This is the play's, what I'm going to call, borrowing a phrase of Freud, the play's primal scene. Uh, taking it from Freud's theory of trauma, uh, a scene of traumatic invasion by the other, where the traumatized subject is overwhelmed and immobilized by a force that cannot be processed or integrated. 
There is indeed something peculiarly horrible about the idea of poisoning to the ear. The ear, that most vulnerable orifice, you can close your eye, but you can't close your ear against invasion from the outside. And the ghosts blow by blow account of the stages by which the poison courses through the gates and natural alleys of the body. It doesn't just describe, but actually repeats and reenacts this peculiarly intimate and traumatizing invasion of the body that works on the very chemical composition of the blood, thickens it and turns it to jelly, and crusts the, the, the sensitive skin surfaces, we've been thinking about skin surfaces and their sensitivity, uh, <coughs> with a vile and loathsome crust. And the result, he says, is that the whole ear of Denmark, the whole ear of Denmark, is by a forged process of my death, rankly abused. So the ghost relives his trauma in the telling of it and transmits it to its recipient, Hamlet. Hamlet's response is to say uh, that thy commandment all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain, unmixed with baser matter. In other words, he'll empty his mind of all other contents except this one um, injunction and this one scene, remember me. And one might say uh, that he is, as it were, condemned to repeat and to replay in various forms that scene of traumatic um, auricular violence and uh, uh, inv invasion and possession, as it were. And it's, it's when he explains why he, why he wants to put on the play. He talk in that long soliloquy, he talks about himself having that power of speech to um, cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free. He too will rise to that power of traumatizing speech um, and address the audience before whom he'll perform uh, the murder of his father uh, and indeed in particular the figure of Claudius. Of course, what actually happens when Hamlet stages the mousetrap, as he calls it, uh, is rather different. There is no, in fact, public exposure of the crimes of Claudius before an appalled public. In fact, Claudius's secret crime and Hamlet's secret knowledge of that crime remain unvoiced and intact. Halfway through the performance, Claudius asks somewhat warily, he's beginning to get a little bit worried, who wouldn't be, um, he says of the play, or he asks of the play, is there no offence in it? And Hamlet replies, no, no, they do but jest, poison in jest. And the poison is only a jest, he's saying, but the jest is a poison. And punningly, Claudius will ingest poison. There will be no catharsis, no purging, no elimination of the toxin. The performance of the inner play, the murder of Gonzago, secretly repeats the scene of Claudius's crime, the play's primal scene, through the figure of Lucianus, the poisoning nephew. Claudius, um, Hamlet will then become the poisoner. This figure, as I've said, conflates Hamlet, the revenging nephew, with his poisoning uncle, Claudius, and it has the effect of paralyzing Hamlet's ability to act openly, publicly, cathartically, to expose the hidden crimes, to bring them to a public justice. With this poisonous performance, the stage is no longer a place of exposure and judgment, but instead it becomes a secret instrument for private vengeance. The sight of a secret return to sender, I know what you did. I'm going to do the same to you. An eye for an eye, an ear for an ear, poison for poison. The play's poison in jest returns to Claudius, not visually through the actions of the dumb show at the beginning of the play, but at precisely that moment 
as Hamlet says, upon the talk of poisoning. Did you see upon the talk of poisoning? Um, that is, through the ear. So it's no accident locked into this traumatic compulsion to repeat, to invoke another of Freud's formulations. In the final scene of the play, both Hamlet and Claudius die, mutually poisoned, each has poisoned the other, in an exchange of poisons. And the delayed public exposure of Claudius's secret crimes, which has been entrusted by Hamlet, the dying Hamlet, to Horatio, is, ironically enough, and appropriately in a way, delayed and postponed yet again. It will not be told within the time of the play, we're told. It will happen after, at some future moment, beyond that closure of Shakespeare's own play. So the play ends then with uh, <coughs> that secret repetition uh, that poison for poison, and with the postponement of the, of the moment of exposure of public judgment and of understanding that might have turned vengeance or revenge into some form of justice. Okay, I'll finish at that point. <coughs>